If you would please take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 12, and then also to John chapter 5. So, Matthew 12 and John chapter 5. We'll also be looking at John chapter 9, but it'll be over in John, so it'll be okay. We've been studying miracles and what they mean, what they signify. And we're doing so through the prism, through the lens of miracles in the ministry of Jesus during his uh, earthly ministry, the miracles he performed. So I mentioned before, previous generations have pushed back against the miracles, saying that they, they could not have happened, not possible, in part because the scientific method says it has to be able to be duplicated and to be measured. That hasn't, that's not possible, and therefore the miracles are dismissed, and the supernatural as well. The church, uh, I think, sadly, has thought that they could win this battle by fighting on this front, and that's actually not the battle that needs to be fought. In the present time, I think people are much more open to the supernatural, much more open to miracles. And so we might think, well, we've won the battle. People have sort of come over to our side of the fence, and they see the supernatural and miracles as truly possible. I think we've missed something really important, and that is, what do the miracles say? What do they mean? What do they signify? We're so, I think, fixated, as were the people during Jesus' time, on the event, on on what happened, rather than what, in fact, it meant or what it was trying to say. As I mentioned before, in the Gospel of John, um, John uses the word signs, wonders and signs, signs and wonders, um, in the place of miracles. I, I think to point out that these miraculous events did in fact signify something. In this series we've been looking at the miracles of Jesus and we've been focusing on what in fact they do mean. There are two primary thoughts that have guided us in this study. First of all, that is the primacy or the importance of the spoken word. So that you don't have Jesus sort of waving a magic wand and healing people or calming the sea. We have conversations. We have Jesus speaking, and oftentimes we have people who engage him first in conversation, and then he responds. Um, The second is that these miracles in turn validate what Jesus is teaching, what he is saying. When the people say, what is this teaching with authority and power, he gives orders to evil spirits and they come out. So that his teaching was based on or undergirded by the miracles, in fact, that he performed. The divine power testified to the divine message, and we see this in the life of Jesus. Just a side note, we need to be reminded that these things really did happen. These aren't parables, these aren't morality stories. These things really did happen, that Jesus did, in fact, really heal people. We don't feel like and I don't in this series, that, okay, are we going to go with the historical event or are we going to go with what it signified? No, it's not either or, it's both and. These things really happen and they do, in fact, tell us important truths. Um, We've been looking at, for the past few weeks, more than one miracle, but miracles that fit into a particular category. Um, Today we're going to look at three specific miracles that all happen on the Sabbath. And so, if you wish, our topic would be the miracles of the Sabbath. The first is found here in Matthew chapter 12. 
uh, beginning in verse number 9, if you follow along as I read. Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there, looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. They asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Just some things to consider. The location is a synagogue. It is on a Sabbath. And Jesus, in fact, did heal this man. The result of which is that his enemies decide they want to kill him. The second story is found in John chapter 5. And if you would turn there. John chapter 5. begin at the beginning of the chapter, John chapter 5, beginning in verse number 1. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. By the way, parenthetically, it's really fascinating John doesn't tell us which feast it is, because all the other feasts he does tell us, but this one he doesn't. Verse 2, now there was in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda. Some translations have Bethsaida and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease he had. One who had been an invalid, one was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The uh, the law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Again, things to consider. The location is a pool called Bethesda or Bethsaida in Jerusalem. There are a lot of disabled people there, people who are blind, who are lame, who are paralyzed. And there was a tradition that every once in a while an angel would come down and stir up the water and whoever got in first would be healed. And apparently this man, because he is uh, an invalid, he is paralyzed, he doesn't make it in before the other people. And so he remains in his condition. Jesus doesn't tell him, you are healed. He simply says, pick up your mat and walk. Um, And the man is healed. The Jews accost this man because he's carrying his mat on the Sabbath. 
By the way, there's nothing in the Old Testament with regard to Sabbath regulations that says it's against a man to carry his mat on the Sabbath. This is a man-made tradition. There appears to be, and I don't want to be dogmatic on this, there seems to be a connection between sin and this man's condition. Because in verse number 14, when Jesus sees him later on, he says, you are well again, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. It seems to have been a a connection between some sin uh, that he had committed or was committing and and his condition. The third story is found in John chapter 9. And if you would look there, please. John chapter 9. This is a story of a man who is blind and Jesus heals him. Beginning in verse number 1. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they demanded. He replied that the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. Where is this man? They asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought, the Pharisee, they brought to the Pharisee the man who had been blind. Now on the day, the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others ask, how can a sinner do such miraculous signs? So they were divided. Things to consider. The blind man's condition raises a theological issue among the disciples. Um, Who sinned that he was born blind? And it's interesting, they, they have two options. Either his parents sinned, and so they have a child that is born blind, um, or some Jews believed in the pre-existence that in your, in your previous existence uh, he had committed a sin and so when he came into this human form he was born blind. Jesus tells them they are missing the point. He makes some mud, he spits on the ground and makes some mud, puts it on his eyes and tells him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. The man receives his sight and this leads to a number of discussions. First of all, people aren't sure it's him. Is this the guy? And Yeah, it looks like him. No, we're not sure it's him. And he finally says, I'm that guy. I'm the guy that was blind. They take him to the Pharisees and another discussion ensues. And that is, who, who is this Jesus that does this? He can't be from God because he has not kept the Sabbath. If you look at verse number 34, the end result of this is this man is excommunicated from his synagogue. Verse number 34. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. 
because he said, listen, this guy must be from God because he healed me. And they're like, listen, we're the religious experts. You're not. And they toss him out. What do these miracles signify? Let me list to you a number of things. First of all, it is no accident. It is no accident that Jesus healed these individuals on the Sabbath. This is where we should begin our discussion. Jesus knew exactly what time it was, what day it was, and what he was doing. This wasn't a, oh, I forgot, it's, it's the Sabbath. He knew exactly what he was doing. It is interesting, in another time that he healed on the Sabbath, um, he healed this woman uh, who had been crippled by a demon. And the ruler of the synagogue is outraged. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue ruler said to the people, there are six days for work. So come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. In other words, Jesus, you can heal you know, Monday or Sunday through Friday. Sabbath, Saturday is not the time to be healing. Um, the Sabbath is a recurring theme in the ministry of Jesus. And I was surprised in, in preparing for the sermon. Uh, Sabbath is mentioned at least 144 times in the Bible. 144. 48 of those are in the Gospels. Almost one-third. I was really surprised by that because I knew that it came up from time to time. But I would think you'd have almost all the mentions in the Old Testament and very few in the New Testament. So what's the deal with the Sabbath? Well, in the Ten Commandments, one of them deals with the Sabbath, a day of rest. It is the longest, by the way, of all the commandments. There are two different versions of it given. The first is found in Exodus chapter 20. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Just point out several things about this particular version of it. This commandment, these commandments, but here this particular version, was given to a group of ex-slaves. Slaves who didn't have a day off. And so the concept that there is, in fact, one day in the week, first of all, there's a week of seven days, but there's one day in which you're not supposed to work, is really a radical idea. This is a new community of people. They are now going to be the nation of Israel. And there are particular ways they're supposed to live. And one of those ways is to keep the Sabbath as a holy day. The basis for the Sabbath in this version is creation. That God created the world in six days and he rested on the seventh. He hallowed it. Um, Side note, creation is not finished on the sixth day. We have seven days of creation. It isn't just six. Oftentimes we see uh, mankind as sort of the pinnacle. On the sixth day, God created Adam, and that's it, and then he just, God sort of backs away. Well, that raises an important question. What about Eve? Uh, that She came later. So the work of creation isn't simply limited to those six days. Um, What God created on the seventh day is rest. God created rest. 
This is a time for his people, those who follow his law, to rest and to find joy and happiness. The second account is found in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And this is, at the, this is almost 40 years later. This is another generation. And Moses has to remind them the Ten Commandments. Okay? And this is what we read. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor the alien within your gates, nor your manservant or maidservant, so that your manservant and maidservant may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. I find this fascinating that the first time that the law is given, God refers back to creation. But the second time that another generation hears the law, it points back to the days of slavery. That God had delivered them out of slavery. They used to be slaves. They had no days off. And now there is, in fact, a day set aside. There is a Sabbath day. It is a time for delight, for celebration and contemplation. But ultimately, the Sabbath calls us to trust God. Because who's going to take care of things if I don't work on the seventh day, if I don't work on the Sabbath? It is an act of faith not to work seven days a week. In the same way that sleeping is an act of faith, you go to sleep and you trust that the world's going to keep going even though you're unconscious. That God will protect you. Um, you know, something might happen, but God is there to protect you. You go down, you lie down, you go to sleep, and you trust that God will protect you. And so it is with the Sabbath. It is really tempting for us to see us as the center of all things and with creation to see us as the pinnacle. This is it. When God was finished with, uh, when he created Adam, that's it. That's, you, you don't get any better than that. It's all about us. And the reality is, no, we are not the end of all creation. In Genesis chapter 1, we read, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. In other words, we're in charge. But we need to go to chapter 2. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. God's not tired. He was not fatigued. Rather, it had to do with the joy that he had. That he had, in fact, created the world. He had created creation. He had given life. We tend to think of it as a break, a day off. It's crazy Six days a week and the seventh day you finally get to take a break. Part of this is I think we're just so restless. There's a restlessness about us. Um, there are, we're almost frantic and, and, and always trying to do something to get something done. God wants us to rest in him. And the Sabbath has been set aside for that. 
it's not a reprieve from life. We might think of it that way. But it is, in fact, a call to rest in God. Ultimately, the Sabbath calls us to trust in God. Teaches us to savor the places where we are. God's delight is made delectable. We can rest in him. The Sabbath was a big deal. Um, In Jeremiah, at a time when Judah was involved with all sorts of wickedness, child sacrifice, uh, murder, idolatry of all kinds, the one thing that God seems to point at is, in fact, the Sabbath. But if you do not obey me to keep the Sabbath day holy by not carrying any load that you come through the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle an unquenchable fire in the gates of Jerusalem that will consume her fortresses. You know, offering your, your child as a human sacrifice, that seems like a pretty big deal. Doing something on the seventh day on the Sabbath doesn't seem to us like that big of a deal. But we need to remember that in fact it was a sign of the Mosaic Covenant. It was established at creation. It is the fourth commandment. And the penalty for breaking the Sabbath was death. It's a capital crime. If you caught what I just said, it is the sign of the Mosaic Covenant. Some people say, no, 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 no. Circumcision is the sign of the covenant. Uh, Let me read to you from Exodus 31. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, You must observe my Sabbaths. This will be a sign between me and you for generations to come, so that you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. It's not circumcision. It's the Sabbath. It was based on creation. It is the fourth commandment. And the penalty for breaking the Sabbath is death. So when Jesus heals on the Sabbath, this is a fairly significant event. Moses tells the people, whoever does any work on that day must be cut off from his people. You're out. You are no longer a part of the people of God. So why did Jesus heal on the Sabbath? Why did he do that? What do these miracles signify? What do they tell us? Well, first of all, I'll suggest several things. First of all, they demonstrate his compassion. The one thing that stands out to me, at least to me, is that each person who is healed is a topic for discussion for other people. Um, The man with the shriveled hand, the Pharisees want to see, is Jesus going to heal him? Um, The man who's carrying his mat, the man who is an invalid, they want to know why he's doing that. The man who's blind, who sinned that he did this? Rather than seeing them as people, as individuals, they're almost seen as objects. Something to talk about. They're not really seen almost as human. This is not what we see in Jesus. He reaches out in compassion. He recognizes that each one is made in the image of God. And he sees human dignity. Jesus, you will notice, did not heal in one way only. Not a cookie cutter approach. He tells the man with the shriveled hand, stretch out your hand. And he does. And he is healed. 
He tells the invalid, pick up your mat and walk. Then with the blind man, he puts mud on his eyes and tells him to wash at the pool of Siloam. So they demonstrate his compassion. And we must take care that in our studying these miracles, these simply don't become objects for discussion, something for us to talk about. But we should, in fact, be filled with compassion for these individuals, this invalid who for 38 years was in that condition. For a man who was born blind, we should have compassion. Secondly, they demonstrate his power. I think everyone says, well, yeah, that's what the miracles are all about, that Jesus has the power to heal. And certainly demonstrated in these stories. But they also demonstrate his authority. It isn't just power, but it is authority. I am struck by the fact that Jesus tells people to do something, and they do it. Stretch out your hand. The man does. Pick up your mat and walk. The man does it. Go and wash in the pool of Siloam, and he does it. But there's more than that. He tells the man who was healed at the pool of Bethesda, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. You see, on some level there has to be authority here. There has to be authority conveyed. Or otherwise he's just a jerk. Who are you to tell me what I can and cannot do? Jesus has that authority. And because Jesus told him, pick up your mat and walk, and the man was healed, when Jesus says, hey, you need to stop sinning or something worse can happen, yeah, I think I'm going to listen to him because he told me this and healed me, so he tells me this. He has authority. I'm going to listen to him. Fourthly, these miracles point to the purpose of Sabbath. You may recall, or not, that in Genesis 1, as we were told about creation, we read the following repeated. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. All the way up to the sixth day. That doesn't happen on the seventh day. On the Sabbath day. As much as to imply there isn't an evening and a morning of the Sabbath, of the seventh day. It's open-ended. It doesn't have a beginning and an end. It is open-ended. It points to something far beyond itself. It seems to imply that the rest of God is not limited, it is infinite. And so the Sabbath represents that. It sees it as the rest of God that he gives to his people. God did not stop on the sixth day. Are you familiar with Psalm 139? For you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Oftentimes when we think of creation, when we use the word creation, we think of a collection of things that God created. This is... This is creation. This is the world. This is the universe what, that God created. I have suggested to you before, and I would again today, that we think of creation as God's ongoing work. God is still at work. He keeps the world going. 
And even when we were conceived and then we were given life, we know from science and from observation that things are being renewed within us. Red blood cells are being made from the marrow in our bones and things like that. That God is still at work, the work of creation. And the Sabbath day calls us to remember that and to trust God. The fifth thing that these miracles tell us is that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. Before the story of the man with the shriveled hand in Matthew chapter 12, there's another incident that happens with regard to the Sabbath. And here we learn the truth of what is demonstrated in the miracle. This is Matthew chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some of the heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple desecrate the day and yet are innocent? I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desired mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Again we see that the Pharisees and all their companions and dare I say, we ourselves, failed to recognize the purpose of the Sabbath. And as such, they were in such a state of unbelief that Jesus does these outstanding acts of compassion. And all they can do is to think is to argue theology. They don't think about the individual. They don't think of the dignity that this is someone made in the image of God that because of the fall, because of the brokenness of the world, this person is in a terrible condition. They're not thinking of that. They're thinking, let's, let's, yeah, this is a Sabbath. You're not supposed to do good things on the Sabbath. And Jesus said, well, David and his companions were hungry. And what do you say to men who are hungry? No, no, you can't eat this. This is the special bread. This is the consecrated bread. And it was a consecrated bread. The showbread, it's, it's in the tabernacle. But they are in need, and so it is given to them. Jesus sees people who are in need, and on the Sabbath, which is the day of God's rest, he heals them. The last thing that I would say that these miracles point to is the new creation. And the Lord willing, in the days to come, in the weeks to come, we will look at this what this all means, because I think ultimately all of these miracles are pointing ahead to the new creation. We're in the original creation right now, and because of the sin of Adam and Eve, things aren't the way they should be. Jesus begins the process of restoring them, but it's all headed somewhere. It's headed to the new creation. The seventh day, the day without end, God's rest, the new creation. Let's pray together. Our Father, there's a part of us that sort of struggles with this because in many ways every day is the same to us. 
the idea that one the idea that one day is set apart. Even Sunday is the Lord's Day. Not something that we really embrace. And so when we read about Jesus healing on the Sabbath, it does not have the impact perhaps to us that it did to those in that time. Amazingly, some people were deeply offended that Jesus did something amazing, that he healed people on the Sabbath. In their narrowness of thinking, they neglected to see the need of those who were afflicted. And they failed to see the dignity that these people are made in the image of God. Instead, they simply become points for debate, things to talk about. The person becomes essentially a number, something to use in a theological debate. I thank you that in Jesus we see compassion and love. And he recognizes the need in each person's life. We're told that there were many people at Bethesda, but he goes to one specific man and he speaks to him. He sees his need. I thank you for scripture, for the gospels that tell us about Jesus. That we see Jesus doing what you do filled with grace and mercy and compassion. And we see in him one who recognizes the true Sabbath, the endless rest that one day we will be with you in the new creation. By your spirit, help us to meditate on these things in the days to come. As we leave this place, may your spirit and your grace go with us. Keep us through this coming week. We thank you again for Mama's birthday, for giving her 90 years. Thank you for your great love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.